Hey Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette, and you're listening to Hey Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. This is chapter 15 in a temporary reformatting of the show as we document what's happening in and around Amarillo due to the impact of the COVID-19 coronavirus. And I can't believe this is the 15th episode I've recorded since then. I'm trying to figure out when to return to the usual format, which is just a one-on-one sit-down interview, but it's not quite time yet. I am, however, making the transition back to only one show a week. It'll be released every Monday like it used to be, including this show. But before we get to the show itself, here's a quick message from today's sponsors. You'll hear in this episode about the hard decisions local businesses are having to make about opening up. I know times are tough. I know there's a lot of of difficult conversations happening in businesses, and I'm extremely thankful for my sponsors and advertisers. One of them is Lazy Boy Home Furnishings in Amarillo. You know Lazy Boy is a national brand, but some of its stores are independently owned and operated, and the one in Amarillo is owned by the Hawkins family, who live right here in town. Lazy Boy is open for business right now, and they're offering a 36-month no-interest financing through May 31st. You can see the store for details. They've also got special financing with their current Memorial Day sale. That sale is ongoing, plus contactless delivery upon request. Visit Amarillo's locally-owned Lazy Boy Home Furnishings today at 3636 Sansi. This episode is also sponsored by Bivens Point. All of us with older parents or grandparents have been thinking about senior health care more than ever before over the past few weeks. Many of us spent the last couple months staying home to protect senior adults that we love. Someday, all of us may get to a place where we have to make decisions about rehab or nursing care for those family members. When that time comes, turn to Bivens, a long-trusted name for senior health care in Amarillo. They've suspended visitation right now, but if you'd like to learn more about this wellness community, visit BivensPoint.org. That's point with an E. Now on to the show. This episode is being released on Monday, May 18th. Two weeks ago, Texas Governor Greg Abbott allowed stores and restaurants to open at 25% capacity. He allowed Texas hair salons to reopen on May 8th and has given the order that gyms and some office buildings and non-essential manufacturers can reopen as of today, the 18th, with limitations. So there are a lot of rules in place. And as testing by the Texas National Guard has increased at local meatpacking plants, we're discovering an enormous number of positive cases in Amarillo. Over the weekend, the city reported 734 new cases. We remain one of the nation's coronavirus hotspots. So there's a lot going on. And businesses are having to weigh all of those things as they think about reopening. Some local restaurants reopened as soon as the state said it was okay. Others have waited, and they may wait even longer. The tension between restarting the economy and protecting the health of our community, it's it's not just a big national conversation. It's happening right now in Amarillo, in commercial kitchens, and in boardrooms, and in offices all across the city. So that's the focus of this episode. How are local businesses navigating the complex issues around reopening, or staying closed. This episode is being released on May 18th, 2020. These interviews were recorded prior to that, so as usual, things may have changed by the time you listen. Uh, Jason Harrison, Executive Vice President of the Amarillo Chamber of Commerce. Jason, thanks so much for being on the show. The, the question I wanted to ask you to start is, I know a lot of local businesses are having to make the decision, do we reopen? Um, do we stay closed? They're listening to the state guidelines. They're weighing, you know, what it means for their customers and staff. From the perspective of the Chamber of Commerce, what are some of the things that you're hearing, and, and what are some of the things that you know these local businesses are having to think about right now? You know, from a chamber perspective, obviously, with the effect it's having on our businesses, on our sales tax, um, just across the board. Um, everybody, including the chamber, is anxious to get back um, opening up. Yep. You know, whether whether it's the businesses, whether it's those that are not working right now, or if it's just the people like you and I that are excited to be able to go and have a dinner out again. Yeah. Um, and 
So, so, but at the same time, and I think this is one of the most difficult pieces of all this, is that safety still has to be a big piece of it. Um, because what we don't want to happen is to open it up too much too soon and then find ourselves back into a hot spot scenario where we're having to potentially go back and shut down again. Right. Um, and so that, that to us is the absolute worst case scenario um, that we open it up too much too soon and then we're having to potentially close back down. So, um, you know, in looking at our individual industries and businesses, I think there's going to be some of them that are going to be easier able to open up. Um, and, and so when I say open up, I mean like on a 25, 50% basis, you know, to begin with, um, you know, places that are set up to um, have drive-throughs, places to have that are, that are set up to have someone come out to the car for people to call in and, and order and buy things online. Um, it's going to be easier for them uh, to, to open up a little bit sooner because they're kind of set up to do that. You does get a little tricky when you start dealing with, uh, you know, barbershops, gyms, um, things where it's a little more difficult to be safe um, consistently. And I think those are going to be the ones that will probably take a little bit longer to open up all the way. Um, you know, I know that they're talking about uh, gyms opening up and where you know, wiping down weights after people work out or machines after people work down. And I think that's, that is going to be a, a somewhat of a tough thing to do if, unless you only have 10 people in your gym at one time. Right. Um, and so I think that we, you know, business are going to have to be creative on how they do it. Maybe they only let people work out on machines and treadmills. Uh, I know that a lot of barbership shops right now, they're, you know, you call in, uh, and then one person goes in and then when they're all done, they come out and the next person comes in. And so they're, they're getting creative on that. I know that the dentist office is doing the same thing. They're, they're not letting more than, uh, four or five people in an area and that includes them. Um, and, uh, and then they're having it where when you pull up, you text that you're there and then they'll get you in whenever everybody's done. There's not going to be just a lot of sitting around in lobbies, um, and those those type scenarios. So, and I think that, you know, the restaurants are going to be and the bars are going to be the toughest, you know, they were the first ones impacted. And I think, unfortunately, they're going to be probably the last one that are open at a hundred percent just because of, you know, the social distancing piece of it. Um, you know, unless you're a huge restaurant, then it's really tough. And especially our smaller restaurants, it's tough to be able to open up, uh, and then still be all the way and still be safe. So um, I think as we progress, we're going to see some industries uh, that get creative with it and that um, are faring better than others that maybe aren't set up uh, to to be able to social distance and be able to wipe things down with disinfectant after people are in there and those type things. Jason, one of the things that has been pretty interesting to me about this. You know, I, I know a lot of restaurants are in a position where if they do open up at 25% capacity, like they're still going to be losing money. It, you know, restaurants operate with really low profit margins. And so while they may be able to do it, like it doesn't make sense for them financially. Um, have, have you heard of any, you know, who have tried to weigh the should we open, should we not open and, and what kinds of decisions are, are those decisions like weighing on them as, as they make that? I think that that's, that's for sure. I've heard that that is the truth. I mean, it's a situation to where um, there are certain places that can run um, at least a break-even point at 25%, uh, but there's a lot of restaurants that, that well, number one is how do you staff, you know, not knowing how many people are going to come in and being able to have, you know, only five tables uh, that are open instead of their usual 20. 
Um, and we saw when they opened that up a few weeks ago that there were still quite a few restaurants that chose not to open. Um, you know, and, and so even though they're saying, hey, we're saying that you can start open if you feel comfortable and you feel that you can provide a safe environment. Um, but at the same time, it still is up to some of those uh, businesses on on which ones open uh, which ones don't, which ones wait. And I think some of it too has to do with the implementation. So, you know, when you're talking restaurants, you know, they have to do away with their regular menus. Many of them are doing smaller, uh, more selective menus. They're having to do papers so that it can be thrown away. They're having to do nothing on the table. The condiments are in to go packets. Um, you know, it's almost like you're getting it to go, uh, because you can't have, you know, you obviously can't clean all that up after everyone goes through. And so, um, I think that you are going to see some businesses that are going to kind of see how it goes. You know, another piece of it, Jason, is that even when we get to a situation where businesses are open, there still has to, we have to get past the fear factor of the consumer. Mm-hmm. Um, and until you can get, un- because you can open the city, but until the community feels safe going out, then you're, you're opening up your doors, but you're still not getting uh, anybody come in. And so I think that is another thing that's going to take a little bit of time um, in that fear factor. Um, so you are going to have businesses that open up and people are going to start kind of getting out a little bit, and then they're going to see where there's not a whole big jump in positive cases. And so then more and more are going to start going out. I mean, they're, you know, mo- most of your younger group, they're ready. They're chomping at the bit to get out. It seems like I'm out every day with my mask on uh, going and do things because I'm one of those that feel like I need to do it. Um, but I think there's going to be some that are going to kind of sit back and just see how that all plays out. Cause again, um, just because you're opening, say, at 50% capacity, um, if you're still only having uh, 10% or 20% of people come into your restaurant or to your business, then it's not making it any better. Yeah. Do you... And do so you have, I... Yeah. Well, I, I was going to say, one of the things that I think complicates it, at least that I've seen is that you know when you have these regulations like a 25% capacity or a 50% capacity there's no real enforcement of it and so what business owners are having to do is sort of operate according to an honor system um and balance you know that desire to do well by their employees and their customers with the desire to stay afloat financially i mean have you heard any conversations about you know how how do we make sure that everybody's following the rules how do we follow the rules and you know, is is there a temptation to try to inch beyond that and let more people in than than is allowed? I, well, I think that there is for sure. I think that there are some people that, for um, you know, right or wrong, there's some people that still in their minds don't really believe that this is a a big deal. You know, um, they look at the grand scheme of numbers and they think, man, I mean, there's only been 20 people that have died in Amarillo and we only have this many, but yet the whole city's closed down. So, um, and I, and I think what the city is trying to do, and it's a little bit easier in the restaurants because the health department can go out to the restaurants and, and they can force them to take seats out of tables, um, and make sure it's spread out. Um, and, and, and so they can, they can kind of be the eyes, in some of those type situations, but it still comes down to if you see somebody that's opened up and there's a ton of people in there, then it, I think it is up to us as a community to, to make sure that someone's checking on those things um, and making sure that they are, you know, playing by the rules because if, if, if they're not, and you're going to have these things and then you, again, it goes back to the worst case scenario is that we, open up and then we're forced to shut down. Um, and, you know, obviously it's a daunting task. You just cannot police it all. It comes down to, Hey, business owner, you know, just make sure that, you know, you have, there has to be some level of trust 
uh, with the business owner that they're going to do the right thing um, and that they're going to do social distancing, that they're going to clean, that they're going to disinfect, that they're going to do their best to make it a safe place uh, for their consumers to come in. And I think those type places will be the ones that get going the quickest because people will feel safe going and doing business there. Um, the ones that maybe have what appear to be too many people in there, I think then that those are going to be the ones that potentially can hurt themselves in the future because people will look at them saying, well, they're not playing by the rules. I don't feel safe going in there. Yeah. Tell me, tell me about uh, your your thinking related to the Chamber of Commerce itself. I mean, I, I know that you have several employees that, that work on site. I mean, have have you had those internal discussions about how long do we work from home? How long until we're back in the office? We have, and uh, and so we still are, for the most part, um, doing as guided by the CDC and them. You know, we've got some of our staff are receptionists both on the chamber and the cd side c side are going in on uh, full work days so that we can be there as a resource uh for anybody that might need to call in um you know there are some that need to go in you know we're we're pretty lucky in that we have a large office um and so we're in the process of implementing getting back in routine of going to the office, but at the same time, there are some, uh, you know, Penny Bentley who does all of our social media and, and marketing, you know, there's a lot that she can do from home. And so I think what, especially on the convention and visitor side and them trying to help the hoteliers and the restaurant and the tourism industry, which really is getting impacted, I think, you know, as much or more than anybody, um, they're starting to stagger. There's seven of them in there. And so they'll go two at a time, uh, different days of the week. Um, and, and we're doing some of the same. I think most of our staff is coming in on select days or if they need to. Uh, we've implemented, you know, no more than two people in the elevator. Make sure you're keeping your social distance. Uh, we've got disinfected. So, But as of now, like for the public, then the Chamber of Commerce still is not open for the public to come into the lobby and, and those sort of things. Uh, we hope that that's something, again, by, we're going to wait on the direction of uh, the mayor and, and the CDC and the governor um, about when that's the best, um, the best time to open that up. So, you know, we as a chamber, you know, we can be safe and still provide a resource and value to our members um, without having to actually be in the office. So again, it's it's easier for us to be uh, on this to 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 lean a little bit on the safety side uh, and still able to get one hundred percent of our work done. Okay, Jason, the last question I wanted to ask, and this is one I've been asking all of my guests on the show is what's giving you hope right now? so as as you look at the response of the business community as you look at some of the decisions being made. I mean, do you have a sense of optimism, you know, about this current moment or about as we go forward in the future? Well, I, you know, I, I do. Um, obviously, a chamber guy, I try to stay as, <laughs> as positive as possible. Um, but I'll tell you, speaking from uh, our community, for, from Amarillo, um, you know, I, all of us are on Zoom calls every day. Um, you know, we're, uh, we're talking to leadership every day. We're talking to business owners and industries every day. And I truly feel that Amarillo, number one, is resilient. So I, I feel very comfortable knowing that we will get through this and that we will be better than we were before this. Um, and so, but I, and I also see the community, for the most part, as a whole, getting involved in these discussions and and letting our leaders know about what's going on um, and and for the most part playing by the rules. You know, one of the things that that has got to be tough to do is if you have a business and you're told that you can open, but yet you don't feel comfortable that you can have a safe environment yet for the community, you choose not to open as opposed to opening. And that type of mentality, I believe, will get us through this much quicker than a mentality where, well, they said I can open, so I'm open. Yeah. Um, and, and again, you know, it's, it's easy for me to say because I don't own a business. Um, 
But I think that most people, in, at least in Amarillo, they understand uh, there's a true sense of community in Amarillo. And I think that our leadership and I think that the community leadership, the government leadership work together in Amarillo better than anywhere else. And that's really what's going to get it done. Okay, Jason Harrison, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. Well, I appreciate it to you. Thank you, Jason. Hi, I'm Casey Tan. Uh, I am an interior designer in Amarillo and also the owner and operator of the Nat Antiques on 66 and also from 6 Collective, which is hoping to open in 2020. Okay, yeah, Casey, I, I know you've got... Um, you wear a lot of different hats and that has required a lot of quick thinking, you know, on your part to, to figure out how to take care of your customers, how to take care of, you know, the different vendors that you work with. So tell me a little bit about like what has happened with the NAT, what has happened, uh, just in your world with the shutdown and the pandemic so far. Yeah. So, um, it's been really difficult, um, and kind of confusing to operate considering, um, uh, some of the aspects of my companies have been deemed essential, like construction. So interior design can, you know, move forward. Um, but then, you know, we had to close temporarily um, the retail store, the NAT. And so pretty much we closed a little bit before the actual shelter in place, just because the NAT is located in a high tourist traffic area. Um, and we were still, you know, the week of spring break when cases did start arriving, um, we were still seeing a lot of tourists um, from abroad and from all over the U.S. Uh, to the point where we were trying to implement basically the same CDC requirements and measures that they're asking for now that the state has reopened. We were trying to implement before we closed. We were not being respected, um, kind of being laughed at, and it got to the point where our staff felt unsafe. So we actually closed a little bit early, and we have remained closed on our day-in, day-out operations. Uh, we have kind of started to reopen up for appointment shopping, which is completely private, um, with a lot of different um, restrictions kind of put in place. And... Then when it comes to the new store that we are about to launch, we are really just on hold. Um, like I think a lot of people probably are just trying to wait for some sign of what the future is really going to hold for all of us. Before we talk about the future parts, um, tell me a little about how you dealt with your vendors. Because I, I know with your business, you're not just opening for you or for your employees, but you know, when you shut down or when you right. open, it impacts a number of like independent vendors and, and their own business interests. So how do you, how have you talked about that with them, tried to get everybody on the same page and what has their response been? You know, that is always the part of the NAT that um, a lot of people don't see that I do um, whenever I'm not at the shop. And that is the fact that we have over 100 vendors um, some of these people do rely on their sales from our business for their livelihood. Some of them are just hobbyists. Um, and so whenever we made the decision to close in the middle of the week of spring break, it was probably the toughest decision I've ever had to make um, throughout the decade of being a store owner. Um, it was, it was, there was a large, there was a mixed response for sure. Um, and I think, you know, I, was talking a lot to just different people that I look up to who just kept saying, you know, just give it time, which was the best thing. You know, I mean, I just kind of asked everyone to please be patient with us. Everyone's dealing with the unknown. Um, and as time has gone on, the majority are understanding and sympathetic. Um, there are definitely those that do not agree with, um, especially now that the state has reopened the fact that I am not reopening. Um, you know, they're, they're angry about it and I get it. I mean, I guess that they're angry, you know, that I'm asking them to continue paying rent whenever, you know, sales are plummeted. Uh, you know, something I mean, we're doing our absolute best um, with the staff that we do have in terms of trying to, you know, launch a website, which we had never had for the NAT, um, as well as offering free local shipping and delivery or um, curbside pickup. 
And so it's, it's, you know, it's kind of funny. It's like, we kind of hit, it's like we're on a roller coaster, you know, in the beginning it was Rocky. Then everyone kind of got on the same page. And now we're kind of back to this point where people are getting frustrated and I'm worried it's going to kind of peak again of people being really frustrated come June if the Amarillo area is still being the hot spot, but there are no really government regulations on businesses operating. And if I choose to do what I think is right, it impacts so many, whether they agree with me or not. Um, and so, yeah, that that's, that's been one of the hardest things right now is just hoping that people understand why we're doing the things we're doing um, and just having faith that, you know, customers will come back whenever it's safe. Also having faith in the fact that the customers we are serving right now are actually really appreciative so far of the way we're doing things. Um, and that's something that I'm just trying to have a constant communication line with our vendors about. Um but yeah, I mean, I think that I think the street as a whole will change from this. Um, but I'm, I mean, I'm you know, I'm like everyone else, not exactly sure what that looks like. Tell me, what are some of the things that you are taking into account? You know, as you weigh when or how to reopen, uh, because I know that you know we'll get to a point, and and we're at that point in the middle of May when you can't really rely on you know, regulations from the state because the state is, is allowing businesses to phase in the reopenings. And so it's just kind of up to you. Right. So what are some of the things that, that are going to factor into that decision? I think, um, I think more, I, I think for me to feel comfortable, especially considering the fact that a lot of our vendors are high risk, um, you know, and it is not me for, it's not for me to decide, you know, whether a high risk person gets out and about or not. However, it is for me to decide, you know, if my staff is um, the one spreading something. So, I mean, we're kind of just at a point where until there's more data, I mean, you know, the CDC and the Texas state just got here. Um, and with this virus, you know, the two-week in incubation period, it just, I don't want to rush it because I do think, you know, listening to our local officials and the people that are here, they're saying, you know, stay at home if you can, um, but they don't, you know, they're, again, there's no real regulation, so it's all up to us. So therefore, you know, we're going off of uh, what we're seeing from, you know, scientists and medical experts across the board. Um, and I do think we're also watching what other cities and towns in um, the surrounding areas are doing. So one of the things, you know, New Mexico is not far away. Uh, we're on Route 66. A lot of those people are coming over. They've already been wearing face masks. It's something that, you know, until it is completely proven that they are not helpful, it's something that we're requiring. Um, you know, it's going to protect others from us, and then it's going to protect us from them. Um, and then we're really, really limiting occupancy. You know, we are allowed to operate at 25% capacity, which technically puts us at having 15 people in the building at once. Um, but with a limited staff, being forced to social distance and with Governor Abbott's restrictions of, you know, everything has to be sanitized. We're a 20,000 square foot store with massive amounts of merchandise. Yeah. And so following someone around, I mean, it's just not possible with that occupancy load to meet his requirements. Um, and I find it kind of, I mean, in all honesty, I'm super, it's frustrating. It's frustrating to see other stores not following those guidelines that they're saying you have to, or that Governor Abbott put out there, you know, for retail stores, because it doesn't make sense. 25% occupancy can in no way allow you to make enough money to have a staff big enough to implement the safety measures that he's requiring. Um, so we're just kind of taking it into our own hands. Um, so we did bring back appointment shopping, or not bring it back, it's brand new. <laughs> Uh, last week. And so what that is, is we are allowing people to book one hour to two hour private shopping appointments. Only two people from the same household are allowed in the facility during those appointments. Um, and they have to be masked the entire time. Um, and some people that we've had so far have loved it and said, you know, I'm sheltering in place. I'm at home. And this is 
such an amazing thing that just helps my mental health feel like, you know, I'm doing something normal, but at the same time, I feel completely safe while doing so. You know, I mean, it feels safer and more relaxing than going to the grocery store for sure. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's not the best thing in terms of income, but at the same time, you know, that's something that at least it's something. uh, Because, yeah, I just I don't I don't feel like it's smart right now to just be back up to normal. Did did you ever think that your, you know, your interest in entrepreneurism and antiques would require you to be in a position to make like these moral and ethical decisions and kind of wade through uncharted <laughs> waters like this. I mean, I mean, does that feel like, man, right. this is, this is not something I'm equipped to do. It, I mean, probably if I was new to the Nat, um, like whenever I first moved from just my, you know, small little retail store that was just myself and expanded to the Nat. However, I mean, we've had challenges over the years. We had, major challenges with building safety. We had major challenges with, you know, different damages and things that the building has incurred over the years. And so, I mean, I've had to be this person before and be the voice that stands up and just tries to take everyone's opinions, you know, into consideration and make the best decision that I possibly can. So I've done it before. I just haven't ever had the stark loss in income overnight. Um, yeah. that also, you know, means that, yeah, I don't, I don't know that I like putting myself, I mean, I'm my own employee right now. So all shopping appointments, it's just me. Um, and I, I mean, I don't like it. I don't enjoy it. I don't enjoy having to leave my house, um, with my kids and get out whenever I'm not getting out anywhere else and going into the public. But at the same time, I understand that that's something that I do have to do because of those vendors. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I just, I hope it doesn't, I hope it doesn't carry on too long. Yeah. Casey, the, the last sure. thing I've been asking my guests is what's something that's bringing you hope? So I, I know that you've been dealing with a lot of hard decisions. Um, is, is there anything in this process that you've seen that maybe gives you a, a sense of optimism about how we come out of this or what life might be like on the other side? I mean, I want to say that I hope I hope that before it's too late, a lot of people do realize, I mean, how incredibly important small businesses are to their local community. And, um, you know, that is what makes them unique. That is what makes them diverse. Um, and they're, they're getting to support, like, you know, their neighbor's dreams, and which is a wonderful thing. Um, so I really do hope that, you know, although everyone's at home mostly shopping on Amazon, um, I hope that they are realizing, you know, there are other small businesses like us that are trying to get a website up. We definitely don't have, you know, the analytics in place that most people do. But um, I do hope that they start searching those people out um, the longer that this goes on and really, you know, using their dollars to support them because that, at the end of the day, is really what keeps things going around um, and allows for small businesses to thrive. So um, I'm hopeful that the Amarillo area will do that. I mean, we've, we've been really, you know, we've, we've been a beacon of that in the past, you know, supporting local things over chains. Um, and so I just hope that that kind of comes back out of it. Casey Tam, thanks so much for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. Of course. Of course. Thanks. This is Stephanie Henderson. I am the general manager for Carpetech. We are a floor cleaning, disinfecting, and restoration company. Stephanie, thank you for being on the podcast. I know it's a busy time uh, for you and your team. Can you tell me what was the initial impact of COVID-19, the shutdown, uh, all that stuff on your business? Did you actually have to close? Well, we never actually closed because we are considered an essential business. Um, our company does disinfecting services, biohazard cleanup, and restoration services, which are all um, labeled essential. And so we have actually had to maintain operations, which was um, something that we had to kind of work through and figure out how to make sure to keep our employees safe and our customers safe as we, you know, continue to help the community and in disaster relief and um, emergency services and things of that nature. Okay. So tell me what that looked like, because I know, you know, the work that you do requires entering businesses or even entering customers' homes. So how did you, you know, did, did you have to change anything to focus on that kind of protection? 
Well, the nice thing about what we do is we're a biohazard cleaning company. We have been doing that for about 25 years now. So we already had the protocols in place um, for this type of thing. We've just never seen it um, in this large of an effect on the whole community um, or the whole nation or the whole world for that matter. So we already had um, the proper PPE and the proper protocols and the proper training in place. All of our technicians have already been through the training that's required by the CDC currently to um, continue to operate and to be in other people's homes and businesses. So we we had a leg up there. Um, we did our research and made sure that we were still um, right where we needed to be as far as the coronavirus in particular. Um, but, you know, there's a lot that goes into that, you know, the full PPE and the gowns and the masks and the gloves and um, the goggles and everything that goes into actually having all those things, you know, that was a struggle, making sure that we um, had everything in stock. You know, our suppliers were short um, on the supplies, therefore it would take longer for us to get the things we needed. But we never ran out. Um, we were able to continue and still have been able to continue to to um, wear the proper things that we need to, to protect everybody, make them feel safe, and make them feel comfortable with us in their home and in their office during this time. Okay, and so I, I know that since that is your focus and, and you've been able to do that, you're in a position now where you're actually helping some businesses feel better about reopening, whether it's it's offering them disinfecting advice or coming in and actually doing the disinfectants. I mean, tell me about some of the services that you're providing. Yes, sir. So we are um, providing the disinfecting services for the businesses that are wanting to open now or that have had to maintain staying open as well. Um, you know, there have been a number of essential businesses that we've been disinfecting for on a weekly basis so that they can continue um, to operate. And so with our disinfecting services, um, we can offer a couple of different options. What we um, recommend the most is our spraying and fog method. So we use a chemical called Procure One, and it um, is proven by the EPA to kill for the for COVID as well as 99% of all viruses and microbes, so any um, bacteria. And we will come in and use um, a spray and fog method. So the spray will be for like larger open areas where we can really get a good spray in on. Um, so we go eight foot up the wall, down, and then across everything in the facility. And that includes your contents, your high touch points, your horizontal surfaces. So we'll fog the areas that need like a lighter mist. So fogging is a much lighter mist than spray. That way we can protect your contents, electronics, things of that nature, but still disinfect them. Um, so we offer that service. We also offer um, a chemical wipe down service. It's not a recommended um, because, you know, that, that leaves room for human error. Um, instead of using equipment, you're using, you know, um, towels and spray bottles, and you're going through and wiping everything down. Some companies prefer that, and that's what they need. Um, and so Carpet Tech offers uh, also ATP testing. So what that is, is we can actually scientifically test the cleanliness of your facility. It's really neat because there's an actual science behind disinfecting and cleaning, not everyone um, is certified and professional at the cleaning and disinfecting, so that's something to watch for. But with ATP testing, um, we can come in, and it's, it's basically a swab, and we come in and swab the area. Um, the ATP test tests with RL use, and it measures the living organisms. So ATP is the living organisms on any surface. Generally, we see ratings of somewhere between 200 and 1,000, depending on, you know, what are we doing here? Are we cooking food or many people touching these areas? Is there a lot of traffic? That kind of thing. And um, the standard is to get that down under 50 RLUs. Once we've gotten that down, we can say this has been cleaned and disinfected to the extent that it's scientifically proven to be safe. And it, it occurs to me that, I you know, I know a lot of businesses may be reopening after having been closed to the public, you know, for six weeks or more, which is plenty of time for the virus, you know, to no longer be present on a surface, that, that it may be more important not to clean before you open to the public, but within a few days after opening to the public, that, that maybe a regular system of cleaning is necessary. Is, is, that, is that accurate? 
Um, that is definitely a theory that um, has been widely accepted. Um, you know, one thing that we found through this whole process is uh, nobody really knows how long anything lives on in particular surfaces. Um, there have been many studies that show um, it, it will live longer on, on things that are more porous, um, uh, rubbers, you know, the plastics and the metals um, are the things that have been found for it to not um, live as long on. So I would definitely agree that um, once people have come through your business, where the risk of, you know, any viruses and bacteria coming into your property have heavily increased. So I would definitely encourage that um, after the fact, maybe some kind of routine where we're coming in and disinfecting. You know, every business should have their own in-house disinfecting methods daily currently. Um, and then we can come in and do the full-on disinfect for you. The areas that, you know, you're you're not going to wipe down every day and things of that nature, but still people are touching. And, you know, one great thing, you know, as a business, it's important that your customers feel really comfortable coming into your facilities. And right now that's going to be something that's on everybody's mind. With Carpet Tech, because of our training and our certifications, we can supply each business we come in to disinfect with a certificate that um, shows the CDC approved and the EPA approved chemicals and that your facility has been disinfected and what date it was disinfected on um, so that your, your customers feel, feel very safe when they come in the door and see that. And I know that, that Carpet Tech has operations in Amarillo and Lubbock. And, you know, I know the severity of the outbreak has been different in both of those communities. I, I wonder if you've seen any different you know, maybe decision-making, any different attitudes among the businesses that are your clients as, as they think about reopening? Oh, um, absolutely. We have seen a very, very big difference between Lubbock and Amarillo in particular. You know, we operate in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, Clovis, New Mexico, and Midland-Odessa as well. And I would say um, Amarillo in particular has had the highest number of cases in, in the smaller areas, the rural areas. Obviously, the Dallas area, there's going to be a lot more. Um, but in, in these rural markets that we're in, Lubbock, Emerald, Milan, Odessa, there's been a big difference in, you know, the reaction in the marketplace. We definitely have seen it um, in, in Lubbock. There's a, been a little bit more traction and a little bit more movement to disinfect and then and then get people moving again, where, um, where it's been more severe, like in Amarillo and Odessa as well. There's been a little bit more um, hesitation, a little bit more ho holding back on, you know, what, what are we doing next? How should we react? Um, you know, the state is opening up, but our cases are going, raising every day. So we've definitely noticed a difference in that kind of traction and just making those decisions. You know, it's, it's a hard time right now because every day we wake up, something different is happening, right? Um, you know, the, the, the game changes for us, um, new technology comes out, new studies come out, um, what we're being told even by, you know, the CDC changes. So we've noticed kind of a pause a little bit, especially in Amarillo, of just holding on to, you know, is it safe just yet, um, that kind of thing. Okay, and Stephanie, the last question I've been asking my guests is a little bit more optimistic one. It's, it's what's giving you hope right now. So as you have seen, you know, some of your clients pivot, try to take care of customers, as you've seen the reactions of your own team members. I mean, what's one cause for optimism that this moment has given you? You know, um, we've thought a lot about that because we're a very positive company. We, um, we deal with emergencies and things of that nature all the time. And so we have to really look at the bright side of things. And what I've seen um, internally is just a really great coming together um, of people and team and unity and just understanding like it's, it's time to work hard for not only for ourselves, but for our communities and the people in it so that we can get through this and move on to the next thing, because there is going to be a next thing and there may be a new normal, but it's going to be a great new normal. And we're going to learn so many things in the process as businesses and as families um, you know, the things that have reunited us a little bit um, to the, the con not necessarily one on one contact with maybe our friends and the people we work with, but our own families. Um, and I've seen that 
with our customers and in the community as well. You know, West Texas is really great about coming together and supporting each other. And I think this really brings that back into perspective more than ever. I, I believe that using local business is going to increase again because we're seeing the effect of small businesses having to close down and the struggle. But in turn, it's going to bring us all together to use each other locally more and more and more and help our businesses in our th- families thrive in the future. So I'm very excited about that part of what is going on in our communities and in our company. Stephanie Henderson, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. Yes, sir. Thank you for having me. I'm Brian Kelleher, owner of 575 Pizzeria. Brian, thanks for being on the show today. I, I appreciate it, and I know that it's um, it's a busy moment for you as the restaurant, you know, continues operating with takeout services and curbside and stuff. And you're also thinking about how to reopen. So I, I want to hear from you um, just to start. Tell me a little bit about how 575 reacted after the restaurants were shut down for in-house dining. Uh, well, you know, we had a big meeting with the uh, the mayor and all the restaurant owners and health department in Amarillo. We kind of knew that it was coming. Uh, at the time of this meeting, we were still kind of code yellow, and the mayor informed us of what would happen in code orange and code, code red. And, you know, by that time, we were still kind of like hoping that we'd never make it to code red, that it would, you know, we'd get to code orange with maybe a case or two in Amarillo, but that would be the extent of it. And, you know, life would go on, you know, with just kind of this glimmer of a a kind of a doomsday scenario lurking way off, you know, that that wasn't really going to get to us. Uh, but when it did get to us, uh, it was a pretty abrupt change. I mean, we, the decision to close the the dining rooms, I mean, happened so quickly. And I mean, it, it, it was just a, uh, it was definitely a shock to the system. Like we, it's how we operate forever, you know, at restaurant with, ta- with a lot of takeout, 20% of our business was takeout, but to lose those guest interactions, um, uh, and to lose our front of the house staff, uh, which creates a lot of those great guest interactions, was just kind of like a, a it was it was a quick shock to the system. Um, once we kind of got over that shock, though, uh, our business is was was set up, and even uh, before I opened my restaurants here in Amarillo, I owned the same restaurant, same concept in Denver as takeout only. So. My heritage in this in this industry is in takeout uh, pizza, and so it wasn't a hard transition. Yes, we lost our front of the house staff. Yes, we lost the guests coming in and drinking, you know, beer or sangria or hanging out at the bars with us. Um, but we we were able to pivot to a takeout only model pretty easily. But I know that you know. As, as a lot of different restaurants have pivoted to that takeout model, um, you know, you've run into some hurdles. There are some that are having trouble with the phone systems or some that are having trouble with the way that their restaurant is set up. You know, some restaurants are, are not designed for, you know, takeout or curbside delivery or anything like that. Did you have to deal with, with any of those issues with 575? Absolutely. I mean, yeah, while 20% of our business was takeout, the majority of our business was dine-in. So we were accustomed to greeting guests at the door, to uh, answering, you know, a, a, a certain amount of phone calls that dealt with to-go only uh, or to-go products. Um, this transition, while, yes, it was easy for us to pivot to it in a, in a concept, we knew what we were doing in takeout. Um, the actual logistics and the processes that we had to undergo to make it a hundred percent takeout only uh, was like, it was a new challenge almost every single day for like two or three weeks. We just kind of be like, Oh wow. Like uh, we've got phones. There was, there was at one point we had both restaurants open civic and hillside. And, you know, our phone system is designed to handle all the load uh, coming in and being handled by both locations. Um, once we, we, we came to a point where 
we lost a lot of our staff to uh, unemployment or to self-quarantining and all that kind of stuff. And we didn't have the, the number of people able to run both restaurants. So that was obviously a new challenge. We had to figure out what we were going to do. Um, and, uh, you know, for about a week or so, we ran with some really thin uh, labor, uh, just trying to create the pizzas, create the, the product in the way that we know to do and handle all the phones and all that kind of stuff. Um, and it was some long hours by my staff and I, I credit them for getting through that week. But ultimately the best decision we made was to first shut down civic, um, and consolidate all of our efforts over to Hillside. Um, and so that, that was a challenge in and of itself. Cause we, you know, we took, you know, basically a, a third of our business that was happening at civic and we put it over at Hillside. So now Hillside's taking all the to-go work, which they were, they were good with what they were, you know, accustomed to, but then they added all the people that would order from us at Civic and, and put that on top of it. That's when we started finding out about the phone issues. So hmm. our phones were designed to handle all that uh, load uh, between both restaurants. And it didn't occur to me until about a week or a week or two later. And it was, I called another restaurant and I couldn't get through. I was getting a busy signal and psychologically i'm like oh okay they're busy i'll just call back you know and you know by about the fifth time i called i finally got through and i placed my order but it occurred to me that my guests are not getting a busy signal and psychologically what i think that does and i saw some of this uh kind of come through in social media we had guests that were just like I've been on the phone for 30 minutes, like listening to a dial tone. Then once I got through, I was put on hold for another 20 minutes. And I'm like, wow, like Hillside can't handle the amount of volume of calls that are coming through. And the guest isn't hearing a dial tone. Yeah. So by the time, we, by the time we get the guest, they're already irritated because they've been dialing for so long. So we had to, we had to kind of figure that out and create a, a busy signal for the guest, I think, um, so that they, psychologically would just know that we're busy. You know, it's not that we're not picking up the phone. It's that we're, we're just busy. We can't pick up the phone. Um, and so that, that was a, that was a challenge. One of the other challenges we kind of came uh, found over at Hillside once the business was a hundred percent there was that architecturally speaking, it wasn't suited to handle that much to go business out one door. Uh, there was a lot of bottlenecks, uh, a lot of the alleyways that my staff walks through, a lot of the where, areas where the pizza is produced, uh, just it, it, they were so tight in there. So we decided a, a couple of weeks ago to open uh, both the front, the, the south entrance, which is the main dining room entrance, and the north entrance, which is our normal to-go entrance, and run to-go out of both of those areas. Fortunately, we had some of our staff come back and want to work after initially uh, filing for unemployment. Uh, but they either it wasn't working for them or they were just bored at home or whatever. They wanted to come back and work. So we, at that point, had enough employees to get all of our ovens over at Hillside operating fully so we could, you know, handle uh, a much bigger load at, at, uh, at Hillside over the weekend than we were able to uh, just run in one, uh, one set of ovens. So it's it's just been a lot of like I don't know logistical challenges of, of figuring things figuring out how to do this in this time. How how has the response been from customers? I mean, has being takeout only has it been uh, enough for you to feel good about having stayed open and retained some of the employees? The volume of takeout orders at our hillside location is accounting for pretty much what we would normally do at hillside on a normal week, um, which is, I mean, a blessing. It's, I think it speaks to the, to our staff and the ability for them to process orders, get them out quickly, uh, take care of our guests in a, in a manner that, uh, that, that our guests know and are, are used to and appreciate, uh, you know, we're just like any other restaurant too, though. I mean, we've had our, our trips and our, and our, we've stubbed our toe many times, I don't like the process of having guests pay for their food before they get it. 
It's, you know, like if we accidentally burn a pizza, it, it stays in the oven too long. And then, you know, it goes out to the guest and, you know, God forbid one of my staff members says, you know, I think that product is good enough to go to the guest and the guest gets it home and they open it up and they're like, that's burnt. You know, that's not what I wanted to pay for. You know, the fact that we're like, getting accepting payment before we get give the guests their product is not something I'm I've been comfortable with but you know through this time to avoid interaction with the guest as much as possible it's just been a process of our business to kind of take the credit card over the phone and process payment just to eliminate that many more times that we're having to interact with the guest so, so tell me tell me where you are right now i mean according to the recommendations of the state restaurants can reopen at reduced capacity. You know, there's, there's a lot of different phases and a lot of businesses that are starting to, to think about that process. So just because you can reopen doesn't mean every restaurant is, is going to, in, in terms of in-house dining. So tell me what decisions are you making right now with 575? Well, uh, two weeks ago, governor Abbott allowed us to open at 25%. Um, And supposedly this next Monday, uh, there's going to be an announcement that we can open up to 50 or 75%. I think that number is still kind of everybody's waiting to hear. Um, You know, when it was 25%, I just, I looked at all the the requirements that it would take for our kitchens to open and our dining rooms to open and getting our staff back, um, kind of taking on some of the challenges of, switching to single-use condiments and and our staff wearing masks throughout the restaurant. Social distancing, I don't think would have been too hard, but just kind of some of the other uh, parameters that they were kind of setting for us. I, To be honest, I just was kind of of the opinion that we're doing just as much sales now um, as a takeout business than we were doing dine-in that I, I really didn't want to expose my staff to new risk new challenges um, that I didn't think were necessary at the 25% level of, of dining room capacity, you know, allowance. Um, When it switches to 50 to 75%, it won't be so much of an issue. I I know my guests want to come back. They've talked to us through social media and, you know, in various other ways to say, we, we look forward to, you know, dining with our bar, our favorite bartender, grabbing some sangria at the bar. Um, and we want those situations to happen where, uh, but it's right now, it just doesn't make sense to us to put our staff in that, in that risky position for not that much more in sales, in our opinion. Um, and, and not that, I don't know, it's I, basically where I've kind of stayed from the very beginning of this pandemic to even now is I want what's best for my staff. Um, If they feel threatened, if they feel uncomfortable, if they feel like they're, they're putting themselves at unnecessary risk. I don't, I don't think we want to sacrifice our relationship with our staff members to chase, I don't know, dining room revenues when our takeout revenues are, are, sufficient to, to pay the bills, to pay our staff, and to continue producing a quality product uh, that 575 can stand behind. I, we, we do have a, a couple projects that we're working on at Civic to uh, kind of improve, uh, I don't know, just operations and, and decor and stuff like that that's been needed for a while. So I've taken this time to fix some of those issues. Um, but it's, I don't know, I The other the other big problem I think is going to be is trying to find staff enough to get both dining rooms open. Um, And we we have a lot of front house staff indicating that they're they're getting ready to come back or willing to come back, Um, but we we still struggle in the back of the house. And and some of the positions that we run in the back of the house take two or three months uh, to train, and it's it's. uh, it's just a big challenge right now. Brian, the last thing I've been asking my guests is what is one thing that has given you hope over the past couple of months? And so 
as you've seen the response of your community, as you've seen the response of uh, your staff members, your guests, uh, is, is there something from this moment that you're going to take forward and, and draw some optimism from? The highlight of this, I guess, is I know I've gotten to spend a little bit more time with my family at home. Uh, I know my staff has gotten to spend more time with their family. And I think everybody's going to be a little bit better for it. I think priorities may have shifted a little bit through this time and families have kind of risen to the surface as far as uh, kind of much more important uh, in, in individuals' lives, my, my employees in particular. And uh, I think we'll, we'll, we'll appreciate that when this, when this all gets done. Brian Kelleher, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. Absolutely, Jason. Appreciate the opportunity. And you, you stay safe. All right. You too. And that concludes the episode. First, I want to say thanks to my four guests for providing insight into the current moment and the decisions they're having to make. Thanks to Lazy Boy of Amarillo and Bivens Point for sponsoring the show. And thanks, as usual, to Angelina Marie for stitching this episode together. Before I close out, I do have a favor to ask. I'm trying to create an upcoming podcast episode that's entirely based on my listeners' voices. I've set up a voicemail at 806-318-8918, and I want you to call in and tell me the one thing you're going to remember most about the pandemic. Call that number, wait for the beep, and then tell me the most unforgettable thing. Just say something like, my name is Jason Boyette, I'm a local podcast host, and what I'm going to remember most is blank. You don't have to talk to anybody. Just wait for the beat, record your message. And if you don't want to use your name, that's totally fine too. What I'm hoping to end up with is an audio time capsule. All of these episodes are being given to Panhandle Plains Historical Museum as part of its COVID-19 collection to keep in its archives for decades to come. So leave me a message and you could be on the show. You might end up in the museum's archives. Again, that number is 806-318-8918. 806-318-8918. As usual, I want to thank my executive producers, Valerie Gooch, Joshua Rafe, Jess Heredia, Josh Wood, Patrick Burns, Chris Zelda, Wilson Lemieux, Wes Reeves, Jason Burr, Katie Linger, Neil Nossiman, Ryan Pennington, Jennifer Callahan, and Corey Burns. This has been episode 145. My name is Jason Boyette. Stay safe, wear a mask, and love your neighbor. <laughs>